As Christians, what do you do when you find yourself confronted with secret sin? As a Christian, what do you do when you're having struggles in your marriage and managing that relationship well? Just think as as a Christian, how do you deal with kids who aren't responding to your efforts to discipline them? Or maybe adult children who have run off and dishonored the legacy you hope to lay for them in loving the Lord. Maybe a whole bunch of anxieties of upcoming events in your life, at work or in the neighborhood that you have to manage. How do you as a Christian deal with all of those things? I certainly hope that the answer to that question and all of those questions I just listed out would include that we have to run to the Word of God. This is our absolute source. This is the starting point for the way that we deal with everything in our lives. In fact, we submit to this so much that if you and I, as believers, were to think something, believe it to be true, and then find that contrary in the Bible, then we would trust the Word rather than our own heart, rather than our own mind, rather than the world around us, no matter how loud they may scream. At the end of the day, The Word is supreme because God is supreme, and He does not separate Himself from His Word. Like a man who lies, or is incorrect, or uncertain, you and I need the Word in our life all the time. And this is is why, if you're a Christian, and you're not regularly engaged in this, when I say regular, I don't mean like every other week. I mean daily, daily spending time in God's Word. If you're not daily spending time in God's Word, I don't even have to try to convict you of that. The Holy Spirit's already doing that work in you. Because you know how critical it is that you are connected to the source, that you know what God's Word says. This is actually why I think that we should take great effort to remove whatever obstacles, whatever little things to get in the way of our time in the Word. That doesn't only include the practical things in life, like making sure we have time set aside so that we can get in the Word, and that that's not being impeded upon. But I know that there are There are many Christians who read through certain passages of the Bible and get to some genuinely hard stuff. And rather than persisting and keeping on and and pressing in and trying to figure out and to grow through those things, just go, man, either this is not for a person like me to invest in all the time, or the Bible must be taken in a much more esoteric, kind of out there sense that it's got truisms and proverbial goodness, but ah, it's just hard to make all of those words apply to my life today. It's in this spirit that we're starting back into Daniel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you, as I hope you do, I'd ask you to open to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 20 today, and we're going to make it through verse 24. That's as far as we're going to get, just those few verses, and we're going to spend the great majority of our time, Lord willing, on the 24th verse of this chapter. And the reason that I gave that intro is because I know, I know this, that Christians read through the Bible, and they get to hard stuff, especially passages like This one in Daniel 9. And it's not just a story. The language used here is apocalyptic. It's prophesying future things to Daniel. Even the words that are used here are cumbersome and kind of difficult to understand. And I know that passages like this can actually become a stumbling block for people. And I think it's why an enormous number of modern Christians just avoid reading books like Revelation, reading books like Daniel, reading the passages of the Bible that talk about the difficult-to-manage end-times topic for Christians. But we want to be faithful to the text, and that means we're going to have to walk through all of this stuff. And not only that, I want to show you how not scary it is. 
It's not scary. You are smart enough to understand what's going on here. And that doesn't mean that there's only one possible way to view this, and therefore, I'm going to show you the key. You've you've been waiting for it all your life. No, I acknowledge that we have to start with a hard passage like this with humility and charity. Humility in that we have to acknowledge we don't know everything. We don't have all the pieces. My mind is corrupted. I I have a thousand presuppositions as I come to this text, and I'm not speaking the language of the original audience, and there's a whole bunch of uh, contextual problems that I've got to get over in order to understand this stuff. No, we must be humble when we approach these things and say, I could be wrong. And charitable, we have to use texts like this to demonstrate a care and a love and a patience and an abstinence from judgment on our other brothers and sisters in Christ. There are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Word of God, who love the gospel, who will disagree with you on this, who will disagree with whatever view you hold of this passage. And that ought not make us run from these passages. Perhaps in the Lord's preordained plan, He put hard passages here to grow us individually and collectively. There are a few views on this passage. We're going to kind of try to summarize it into two big camps today. But Daniel 9 is an especially challenging text. And regarding this prophecy, no interpretation, no view, no camp, no doctrinal tribe gets out unscathed. No one view can... can, uh, can claim, well, ours is the one that doesn't have any issues. Ours is the one that has no harmonization problems. Ours is the one that if we read it this way, it creates no other problems with other texts of the Bible. That's not true. That's not true of any view of this. <coughs> and humility demands that we acknowledge that. I've studied many, 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 many commentaries on Daniel over the years. This is, I acknowledge, one of my pet doctrines. I like talking about and studying eschatology. It challenges me. I'm going to read for you a few statements from notable commentators on this exact passage. One says this, Its complexity is questioned, Daniel 9, Its complexity is questioned only by those who've not studied it, or perhaps by those whose conclusions concerning its meaning were predetermined by unspoken theological commitments. Another one says, No single prophetic utterance is more crucial than that of Daniel 9. That's significant language. Yet another commentator writes, Daniel 9 provides the indispensable chronological key to all New Testament prophecy. And I could go on. There's lists of these kinds of statements that I have. If you open up a Daniel commentary and you find a person say, Daniel's easy, close it, put it away, and go for another one. Because that guy's fooling himself. You can go after one, after the other, after the other, and everyone goes, this is challenging, this is difficult. For one reason, it's apocalyptic. It's talking about events that are going to transpire centuries after the lifetime of Daniel. And second, the Hebrew language being used here is actually really challenging language. In other words, the author here, Daniel, as he's writing these words down, he's hearing them from Gabriel, as we'll get to, and he's writing them down. All of those words have a wide semantic range. And you know words in English that have a wide semantic range, where a word could mean a whole bunch of different things depending on how it's being used. You know, it's the kind of word that if your kids say, Dad, what does this word mean? You have to go, uh, use it in a sentence. Because there's a lot of ways it could be used. Uh, A classic example of semantic range of a word in English is the word rock. What does rock mean? Well, it can mean a stone. 
It can mean a genre of music. It can mean the, what you do with the baby. A boat can rock back and forth. You rock is really awesome. Uh, it's been said that there may be over 100 different uses for the word rock in the English language around the world. And the context will determine that. The additional challenging part of the language of Daniel 9 is that not only are each of the key words used in Hebrew, can those words mean a lot of different things, but the English versions of those words can also mean a whole bunch of different things. We ought not run from it. This might be, in God's providence, one of those passages that's put there to cause us to pause, slow down, and go, Lord, your word's true. Teach me how to trust this, how to understand this. Help me be a student of your word until the day that I die. And so that's why we begin with humility and charity. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover the rest of uh, Daniel chapter 9 in the next two sermons through Daniel. I think it's only going to take two. Today we're only going to get through verse 24, and I'll explain why when we get there. But I'm just going to read verses 20 through 24. Please follow along with me. It'll be helpful to have your finger on the page, I think, during this. And we'll put the, the verses up there as we walk through them. I'll read through, pray, and then we'll go back in. Let's do it. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. No Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Let's pray. Father, we want to be the kind of believers that love even the challenging topics and even the challenging texts of the Bible and uh, give attention to them. Father, I believe that there are so many Christians today who don't give much attention to verses that are in the Bible because they're difficulty. And Father, I pray that you would teach us to be the kind of believers that just trust and love all of your word and, and, and get great insight and help in these places. Help us to remain humble. Help us to use this as a, as a platform for charitableness, generosity for our fellow brothers and sisters who might disagree. Teach us how to read your word here this morning. Father, help me to not say anything that is errant. Protect me. Protect the, the hearers here, Father, those who I may love and desire to serve in sharing these things. Uh, Lord, let your spirit go and mine out anything that's not true so that we may benefit from what's being taught today. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Alrighty, let's go back at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, if you were here with us as we started Daniel chapter 9, and I went through the first 19 verses, you'd remember that Daniel was one of the exiles taken into custody by Babylon when Jerusalem was sacked. 
And God had prophesied that there were going to be 70 years that the people would be in exile before He restored them to Jerusalem. And so Daniel has been crying out to God, God, it's about time. It's getting to the end of that 70 years. And he starts praying, Lord, you said you were going to do this. Please bring that to pass. Let it happen now. That's what he starts crying out for. But look at what it says in his prayer as it summarizes all that he said in the first 19 verses. It says this, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Daniel here does not shift blame from himself to his people. Hey, God, all, all those people, I mean, I, I, I love you. I follow you. I'm committed to you. But all those other Israelites, yeah, you and I know, they need to repent. So I'm appealing to you on their behalf. No, no. He confesses his sin. I confess my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. This is really helpful to see. He does not shift blame. Even though Daniel was a young teenager when everything came down around him, he wasn't the one who caused all of this to happen by himself. He isn't the one who led Israel into apostasy. In fact, if you were here last week when I wrapped up a quick two-week sermon series on Hezekiah, at the end of his life, God said that he was going to turn over all of Israel to Babylon. Remember that? Through, the, through Isaiah? And when would it happen? Well, it would happen generations after Hezekiah died. It was not going to happen in your life. It'll happen after. So it had already been foretold and even, even uh, specified, because of the wickedness of Israel, I'm going to do this. So Daniel was not chiefly responsible for this. His people, his, his, his generation were not the ones that all of a sudden were the unfaithful ones to come upon history and brought everything into ruin. In fact, what we saw with Daniel and his three partners that were also brought into custody with him at the beginning of this book were very faithful men. They honored the Lord. They were willing to suffer greatly in order to stand strong for what is right. And yet, and yet, Daniel says that he had to confess his sin and the sins of his people Israel. Daniel knows that he, in some measure, has contributed to the guilt of his people. I want to make a quick application leap here for a second, fully acknowledging we live in a different day and a different time period than what's going on here. But it is very easy for you and I to look around at the things that are happening in the world around us and even expect that America might deserve some level of judgment. I, I, I think America and the wickedness of our nation deserves a ton of judgment. But that means that you and I, A, will be collateral of that. And B, you and I are not perfect. And in some way or another, while we may not have celebrated at the same level of the wickedness for the wickedness that the world celebrates with around us, we have contributed in sinfulness. We don't get to stand before God and say, we are the righteous ones, that world, all my neighbors are the messy ones, God. Take care of them. Judgment on them, mercy on me. No. We have to acknowledge, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have to confess my sin before you. All the things that I have done. I am one of the wicked, sinful, flesh-loving Americans. And that's true for you and I together today as well as it was for Daniel back in that day. He confesses his sin before the Lord and the sin of his people, Israel. So much could be said about that, but don't miss this kind of confession. When we cry out to God to ask for things, it is so helpful to remember that we don't deserve those things by acknowledging our sin before Him. Lord, as a sinner, I cry out to you and ask, please provide this thing. I don't deserve the answer to this prayer. I don't, I don't deserve the blessing that I'm asking for. But I appeal to you on your mercy. 
And that's what Daniel does. And what does God do? He sends Gabriel. And he sends him again. Because if you were with us a couple chapters ago in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel saw a vision and he wanted to understand the vision of the ram and the goat. And he cries out to God and God sends an angel, Gabriel. And Gabriel shows up to him to give him the interpretation of the vision. Gabriel here comes again. This is, this is that man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first. That's the vision he was talking about back in chapter 8. He came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And what did he say? Follow me into verses 22 and 23. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So not only did God answer Daniel's prayer, he wanted to understand and he wanted to see the fulfillment of the return of the, uh, the, uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem to their land, but he even sent a messenger, an angel, to deliver this message. Now, you and I ought not expect that the same kind of thing will happen. We're not standing in a place in redemptive history where many others are relying on our receiving of a vision and then recording that vision perfectly to give it to others about what's coming up. That's what Daniel is doing, and you and I aren't in that place. But the Lord sends Gabriel to give him a perfect explanation of what's about to come down so that he would record it for our benefit. And he says, why does he do this? Why has he come to tell it to him? For you are greatly loved. This is such a sweet thing to see. It's easy sometimes when you're just studying doctrine when you're just pounding through theology and trying to pick apart the words, what did that mean? And how does it, It's sometimes easy to kind of become, uh, in a heart sense, kind of removed from it a little bit. My goodness, this is not a mechanical act. This wasn't purely a, God needed to give this vision, someone needed to know, Daniel will do, send it to him. No, there's heartfelt emotion in this, for you are greatly loved. Daniel, God loves you. God will answer your prayer, and He'll answer it in this supernatural way. And yes, this will benefit many, and this will be written down for thousands of years for us to still study it and investigate all the parts and pieces of it. But why? Why? And, and what was said about this that was also recorded? Daniel was greatly loved. You and I sometimes need to be reminded by that love. We need to be reminded that the Lord works things into history and into the, our moments of life and even into the big grand things, not just as you're a part of the mechanical wheel that turns throughout history, but there is a loving attention given to God's people. And here, it's explained for the way that he loves Daniel. It's awesome. If you're not a believer today, you need to know that in your sin, just as Daniel needed to confess his sin, not deserving or worthy of any response from God. God intervenes in our wicked sinfulness when we cry out to Him in love. If you cry out to God, if you're knocking on His door, if you are calling out to Him, He will answer. He will open the door. What do you have to do to be saved? Cry out to God. Cry out to Him. That's what Daniel does here. And every good blessing the ones that you've already have and the ones that you will ever have in your life have been received as an act of love from God, and we must thank Him for that. He continues on in verse 24 with what Gabriel said. Follow me here. And this is where we're going to land. We're going to, we're not, this is the last slide for, this, for today because we're just going to sit on this verse and we're going to pick apart the pieces of this for the rest of our time here together. 
He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Start with the 70 weeks right off the bat here. First words, Gabriel says in regards to this vision, is that 70 weeks are decreed. So we first need to clear this up. 70 weeks, what does that mean? Well, if you were to look at your your Bible, I bet you that many of you have a little footnote that the word weeks isn't actually used there. It's actually the words for, for sevens, sevens. There is another way in Hebrew that you can record a week, a seven 24-hour periods. That's not being used here. It's, it's units of seven indetermined periods of time. No one knows exactly uh, what would be going on here if it hadn't been for other indicators as to how long this is supposed to be. A unit of seven things. It might not be surprising that many have concluded, and when I say many, the overwhelming majority of scholars see 70 weeks to refer to 70 weeks of years, 70 groups of seven years. So, 490 years in a very non-literal sense. Now, while we will see that this can be taken in a whole bunch of different ways, and what comes in Daniel chapter 9, there's a variety of different interpretations. Almost everybody is in agreement that this is talking about 490 years. In fact, what I found really exceptional, considering how many different opinions there could be about this, the huge majority, even of the opposing camps on this one, agree that this 70 weeks, this 490 years, either refers to a period of time that is exactly and precisely 490 years or close enough to be rounded quickly up and down, 485, 492, that 490 is a good summary, okay? That's actually really significant. The huge majority of you say this is not talking about five years or 10,643 and a half. No, no, this is talking about a period of time about five centuries in length. And that's actually very significant. There is, of course, one very notable caveat to that that we're not really going to get into until next week. But I'll come back again and say the majority of you see 490 weeks as referring to uh, 490 years as 490 years, about that period of time. And what's going to happen next is we're going to see six things are explained by Gabriel that will be accomplished at the conclusion of those 70 weeks, and it's at the conclusion of those 490 years. Okay, so Gabriel, what is that 490 years for? This is what it's for, Daniel. Those 490 years will include these six events. That's essentially what he's saying. I need to pause here, give a moment of silence, and make sure this is really clear. You've got to hear this. How you interpret this verse Those six things in verse 24, what you think they refer to will most certainly determine how you view the rest of the passage. There's almost no way around this, sincerely. Every commentator that I found who saw one view in verse 24 followed that down and it influenced how he saw the rest of Daniel 9, okay? Everyone. Not only that... But this being one of the most significant end times or eschatology passages of the Old Testament, it may and probably will very likely influence how you read many other eschatology passages throughout the Bible. You you track what I'm saying? What you think about verse 24 
will very likely tell you how you're going to read Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, the entirety of the book of Revelation. It almost always works out that way. Not certainly, almost always is the case. If you think that the things that are listed out here in verse 24 have already happened in our history, that we can look back and see them already having taken place, then you will be prone to see many more passages in the Bible through that past-viewing lens, what I introduced a few uh, a month ago as a preterist lens. It looks like these are past things. If you were here with us in Daniel chapter 7, I tried to slow down and make this as clear as I knew how to do it, that the majority of views can line up on one of two sides here that either the events of Daniel 7 are past or future. That's the majority breakdown. The same is true in Daniel 9. Either the majority of the things being stated here are past to us or future to us. It's simplified, but that is, that is the majority of views can be summarized into those two camps by far. And if you think these have already happened, then you're looking through what's called a preterist lens. You're expecting, ah, this stuff, where did this happen in history? Now you're going to want to find that out. However, if you think that these six things have not yet happened, I don't think these happen. If you think that, then you also will be prone to see many more passages of the Bible through a futurist lens. Because Daniel chapter 9 is referred to multiple times in the New Testament, multiple times in critical points of Revelation and Matthew 24 especially. So you need to know that. You can either view this mostly future or mostly past. You getting it? Tracking that? And just to show my cards right now so you see where I'm coming from, as I've studied this and I've invested my energies into this, I have become convinced that this is mostly past. I think that the events that are listed here in chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 24 and following have already taken place in our history. They are future to Daniel, to be sure. Daniel was looking forward to this event happening, yes. But I think that all of these things happened at the first coming of Jesus Christ. I think that what's about to be talked through for the rest of our time today and into the next sermon in Daniel chapter 9, I think that those things have all been fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. I think that's what's happening. And I hope to make that case here over the course of a couple of weeks. So that's, my, that's showing my cards. I view Daniel 9 in a preterist way. I think that this is past. So we're going to move forward and look at those six things. But first, pause and consider what these six things are talking about. Do you see that even Gabriel says this here, like Daniel already asked, that 70 weeks are decreed about, about what? About your holy people and your holy city. So, so first thing, all right, Gabriel, let's just, get, let's just set the stage. What are you talking about? Daniel's been asking, hey, what's going to happen to the Jews? Can you tell me what's going down with my people? My... And here he answers, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. This is not Washington, D.C. This is not people who were born and raised in China or in South Africa or even modern Americans. This is talking about Jews, ethnic Israel. That's what this is talking about. And at that point, yet again, we find yet another point at which the opposing views tend to agree. This is talking about Israel. Some will say it's talking about future Israel. Others are saying it's talking about past Israel. I'm there. But this is not about all the Gentile nations. This is chiefly about 
Israel and what's going to happen to Daniel's people. It's important to see that's what's going on here. And these are the six things that will be accomplished in Israel regarding the Israelites over the course of those 70 weeks, those 490 years. So let's go through that list of six. First, to finish the transgression. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Finish the transgression. Now, I suspect that most of you would know that transgression means sin or evil doing. It can be interchanged with that kind of idea. It's used oftentimes in, uh, like in the Psalms and Proverbs to kind of be a, um, a bit of a parallel to evil doing and sin. But here, it's not just any random transgression. It is the transgression, definitive. There is a specific transgression in mind. There is something ultimate and final about this. There's a finishing of it. Something is waiting to happen in Daniel's day that I think has already happened. What is that? Well, that's the final. Well, let me ask it this way. If I were to ask the Sunday school kids to come in right now and ask them, hey, kids, what was the worst thing the Israelites ever did in their history? I don't think it would take long before one of them said, they killed Jesus. Yep, that's it. The single worst, most heinous and despicable act in the history of all humanity was the murder of the Son of God, the only innocent human who's ever lived, in an atrociously wicked way. They turned their back on their own Messiah, on their own God, and they did so blaspheming against Him. They said that He spoke against the temple. They literally had to find people to lie about him because they knew they couldn't do anything else. They conspired to kill not only him, but Lazarus because he raised him from the dead. We got to kill this guy. That level of wickedness is a whole new level. That's what it means to finish the transgression, to finalize, to complete that transgression. It is the culmination of all the wickedness of the Jews throughout the ages. Did you know that the word finish here means complete or to be spent or to accomplish? So 70 weeks are decreed to accomplish the transgression, to bring that to a close, to do the final wicked, awful, bad thing that their entire history has been pointing them to. Turning their back on God incarnate. Jesus, many times, tells his generation, his generation, that they were more wicked than those who came before them, that they would bear the guilt of all the generations before them. Man, if you just want to underscore this, pull up Matthew chapter 23. Jesus just gets furious at the Pharisees, the the religious leaders of all the Israelites at the time, and he just excoriates them through seven woes. And some of the stuff he says in there, all of the wicked blood that's been shed by you and your fathers will come upon your heads, he says. It's intense language. He even tells them the parable of the tenants. You might remember that parable if you're familiar with Jesus' parables. In Matthew 21, he's preparing to go to the cross. And on the way, he tells this parable of a master who purchases a vineyard. He gets it all ready, and then he rents it out to tenants. We'll work the land, and then he'll get his cut when uh, harvest comes. And so when harvest time comes, he sends some messengers to go get what's rightly his. Do you remember what Jesus said those tenants did? They beat and then threw out those who came, the messengers who were sent. And the king is, the the masters, are you kidding me, these guys? What what audacity? So he sends other messengers, and each one they beat, and and they they, they hurt, and they harm, and they, they persecute, and then throw them on out. 
And then what happens? Do you remember? I'll, I'll tell you the summary is this. Jesus says in Matthew 21, 37 to 38, Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. This was the culmination of all the wickedness. All of the abuse of the messengers that had come before was just pointing to the great, audacious finishing of the transgression. And I think that's what Gabriel is prophesying will happen. 490 years to finish the transgression. And you might be surprised to know that that happened exactly inside of that 490 years. We're going to get to the breakdown of dates next time we're back through here, okay? So I'll walk through like literally the years on all this. But it would have been exactly halfway through the last week of those 70 weeks that Jesus would have died and the transgression would, transgression would have been finished. What else happens? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. I think there's two possible ways to do this here. So let me make one acknowledgement before I answer what I think is really going on. You can either see this as something positive or negative. End to sin, that's great. He stops all sin, right? That's one way you could view this. The positive would mean end of sin or the effect of that sin for Jews. It's not saying that there's no sin anymore, obviously, because they continue to sin. In, in every eschatological scheme, there is sin that will come about after these things take place. Every one of them, okay? But the idea is that no longer will those people, those believing Jews, be in bondage to sin. No longer will the effect of that sin sting their life. But forevermore, they will have eternal life. That's what the idea is. So that's one way to view it. You could view it that way. It is certainly true that believing Jews have been freed from sin just like you and I have been freed from sin. And that's a possible way to view this statement, to put an end to sin. And that would fit right there at Jesus' death on the cross. But I, don't, I actually don't think that that's what's being stated here. I actually think that this is saying something negative instead of positive. And the reason that I think this is, I'm in agreement with a great number of scholars who see that the word for end is not end, it's actually to seal up, to seal up. It's actually the exact same word that's used a couple statements later, to seal both vision and profit. It's that word. Daniel used it again twice in chapter 12, and each time it's, it's, it's uh, translated in English as seal, not end. Seal as in confirm. In fact, more than half of the times that that word is used in the entirety of the Old Testament, it refers to a king sealing a document, sealing a scroll with his signet ring. That's the idea. It's a confirmation of something. In fact, in the entirety of our Old Testament, all the Hebrew writings that we have in the Bible, precisely zero of them are translated in English as end, except for this one. And it's interesting, historically, I was chatting with Luke about this even before the service. Historically, it always said for hundreds of years, the Bible translations that people use only said to seal or to confirm. And then all of a sudden, in the modern era, it switched to end. I, I wish, I don't know why. But the term there is to seal up, to seal the sin. In fact, I bet you some of you might even have it in your footnote right there, that it actually says it. If this is meant to seal up sin, then I think what that would mean here is to preserve for judgment those who committed the transgression in the previous verse. 
to finish that transgression and to seal up the sin, to confirm the judgment to be sure, sealed up, put away, stored up for a day of judgment. And that's exactly the way that Jesus talked about that generation. Jesus said to Matthew 12, 41 through 42, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Repeatedly, Jesus makes those kinds of statements. He knows that there will be a kind of storing up for judgment for those who lived in the Jews, as Jews during his day, the day of his uh, crucifixion that will receive a special kind of punishment at the end. And I think that's what's being stated here. Could be the other one, but it seems to me most likely. Also, you'll notice the three words for sin are being used here in the first three ones. Transgression, sin, and iniquity, which we're about to cover. All those are negative that need to be dealt with. The third is to atone for iniquity. These 70 weeks are going to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. This, of course, of course, refers to the ultimate and final atonement for all iniquity. Jesus' death on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. If you're not a Christian today, this is what you need to know. I talked about God's love for you even before we got to here, but God's greatest demonstration of His love for sinners was that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent His only begotten Son to live on this earth, a perfect life you and I ought to have lived, and He took the punishment due for your sins and mine onto the cross. And if we believe in Him, we can have eternal life. That's what you need to do. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. You need to believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only way that you can be forgiven of your sins and have peace with God. Because Jesus on the cross atoned for iniquity. He atoned for sin. He paid the blood price due for the sins that we've done. And here it's most chiefly talking about the Jews. He atoned for iniquity for them. Now, I'm going to point out how the futurist views this. Because you might be wondering, well, Rich, you said earlier that the, the futurists see almost all of this as future but Jesus already died for our sins. So how does a futurist view this? Well, there's a couple different ways, but the, the most common way, the futurist will admit this is Jesus. There's no way around this. This is Jesus atoning for sins, <laughs> atoning for the iniquity of the people. But the futurist is also motivated to see this as, as future. It's got to be there. Otherwise, it's this odd, awkward, just kind of stands out in the, in, the, in the flow as all these things that are future. Oh, by the way, this thing that happened back there and then the rest. It feels really weird. So they got to deal with that. One of the ways they deal with it, the most common way they deal with it, is to say that this is a statement referring to the future application of Christ's atonement to the Jewish people. That's what the futures would say here. And there's all kinds of interesting language about it. I'm trying to summarize the language as helpful as I can. To atone for iniquity means that, it will, that in the future, there will come a day in which the atonement that we know has already happened will finally be applied to the Jews. That's the way the futurists would view it and say that's actually a future thing, not a past thing. But I, I don't think that it says that. I don't think that you can get there even with Hebrew. And for the record, Jesus will not atone for anything in the future. That's done. That's like almost the entire point of the New Testament book of Hebrews. It's finished. There's nothing remaining. All the sacrifice for sin is finished. The atonement is complete. It's finalized in that. I think that that's a stretch to try to make it say something else. In fact, when Jesus hung on the cross, he even said in his final breaths, do you remember what he said? It is almost finished. In the future, I'll, I'll apply it. No. 
I think when he said, it is finished, that really, really was a definitive statement to that. And of course, my futurist brothers and sisters believe that he said that too. But I think that that was yet another way to go, man, there's nothing yet remaining here, okay? There's not some additional atoning act that has to be accomplished in order to cover over Israel in the future. I don't, I don't think that's what's going down. It is finished. The work is done. Atonement, complete at the point of Jesus' death. So I think to atone for iniquity, again, is a past event that took place in Jerusalem, outside the city gates, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified for our sins. Fourth thing he says here, Gabriel says that this is the 70 weeks are to bring in an everlasting righteousness. Now the futurist grabs this language and goes, ah, everlasting righteousness. Well, clearly that is a forever righteousness. That is a, that feels final and complete. There's nothing unrighteous after that. It starts the righteousness, it ends righteousness. And for the record, they've got a good point. But let me ask you a question real quick. If you're a believer today, do you have eternal life? Even as you sin and you're still alive today and you'll die physically? Yes, you do. The whole New Testament continues to tell us that. That there is a kind of already not yet. There's a way in which we absolutely, right now, you have eternal life. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have it. It's yours. Right? And I think that's the kind of way that this language is being used right here. This verse doesn't say that after this point, there will be no more sin of any kind on earth. And for the record, even my futurist brothers and sisters acknowledge much sin on the earth will take place after this event in their scheme. Listen, we're not going to get a whole lot into the millennium right now because that's not actually being discussed here in Daniel 9. It will inform a millennial view in some way, to be sure. That's not really what's going on. But a futurist view would be that someday at Jesus' second coming, he'll return and then bring in everlasting righteousness. And there will be a thousand years in a future millennial kingdom in which righteousness reigns. But the problem with that is even in that view, they believe that there will come a day where there will be a numberless horde of God-hating people sinning and setting themselves against the camp of the saints to kill them. So everlasting righteousness, even in that scheme, does not think that that means no more sin. That's not what's going on. There will be sin after, and everyone sees that as well. I think that this is satisfied in the coming of Jesus in his first advent. The word bring in is to cause to happen. And that, that's not surprising. In English, we would say, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That's how that works out. But it ca- it's something that took place. And that's just what the New Testament tells us happened as a result of Jesus' first coming. Not that we're waiting for a righteousness to be revealed in the end, but righteousness now has been revealed. Paul goes to great lengths to make this case in Romans chapter 3. Listen to what he says. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And it's the idea. He acknowledges, listen, Old Testament, law and prophets did point to this, did say righteousness is coming. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law in a similar way that you and I have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sins. All of our wicked deeds have been cast as far as the east is from the west. We have an everlasting righteousness. 
And all of that is had in Christ. And so I don't think we're awaiting an everlasting righteousness, but we have it today. To be sure, in the future, we will feel the full consummation of it in heaven with our Lord for forever. When all of our sinful flesh has passed away and all that's left is spiritual and good and a new restored body. But I think today it is true that Jesus established, he brought in everlasting righteousness in himself. And that's why when God looks at us today, he sees the perfection of Jesus and not the wickedness of a sinner deserving punishment. Fifth thing is that to seal both vision and profit. To seal both vision and profit. Another thing the 70 weeks are going to do, what will be accomplished? Sealing of both vision and profit. Now remember, we already did the word for seal. It's exactly the same word that said an end up there. Um, this is yet another place where the king uses a signet ring to confirm something. In fact, most all translations of the Bible up until the modern era said fulfilled when they talked about this because that was the idea that they saw, as I think is the case as well about this, to fulfill both vision and profit to finalize that, to confirm it. So what would that mean? What would that mean to confirm vision and prophet? Well, it would mean that all that God has spoken about Jesus, everything that the prophets had given, both through visions and prophecy, and recorded for us, all of that came to pass. All of it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus came and said, I did not come uh, to, to put away the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it? Not the least iota, not the little dot, tittle is going to be removed from the law. I've come to fulfill all of that. He's the fulfillment of all a vision and prophecy con, uh, concerning Jesus Christ in his coming. And he says that exact thing in Luke chapter 18. Jesus says this as he's preparing to go up to Jerusalem to die. He says, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. He's getting ready to go up, to go die, and he says, everything the prophet said about me, it's about to be accomplished. Now, you and I know that that's, we don't need to take that to mean, well, there's nothing else. Well, no, we know that there there's, will be things in the future. He will come again. He will, uh, he will usher in a final, ultimate peace in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a judgment for all sin. Yes, of course that stuff's happening. But Jesus is referring to all of those prophecies that are pointing to his need to atone for iniquity. And that's what he says. So to seal, to confirm both vision and prophet, for the king to put his signet ring into that scroll. When Jesus arrived, when he showed up, he finally fulfilled it. What, what did the Jews spend their time, the, the Jewish disciples of Jesus spend their time doing amongst the Jews for the rest of the ministry of the New Testament? Showing people from the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled all this. All that stuff you've been waiting for, the Messiah stuff, it happened in Jesus. That's the whole point of their ministry efforts, their missionary efforts amongst the other Jews. All that was prophesied about the Messiah's coming was fulfilled in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, including, including this very prophecy being given to Daniel. It's awesome. I think that's what's being stated, to seal both vision and prophet. And the sixth thing, to anoint a most holy place. To anoint a most holy place. Guys, this is just another one of those places that's just unfortunate. If you have the NASB, they do a good job of this, the, the, the New American Standard Bible. They use uh, italics for the words that aren't there in Hebrew but are being supplied by the English translators to try to kind of make sense of certain passages. You'll notice this one's in italics. Why? The word place. 
Because the word place does not exist in Hebrew here. It's not there. It's not there anywhere. You might even have that in one of your footnotes, if you, depending on what kind of Bible you have. The word place isn't there. It, mean, it says, quite literally, to anoint a most holy. This is another historical thing. Again, if you look back in the, the translations of the Bible, for hundreds of years, they just said holy one. And eventually someone said holy thing. And only the new modern Bibles all say holy place. Even in the Old Testament, the exact same phrase, most holy, is referred to the angels. 10,000 of the most holy were present at the giving of the law of Mount Sinai. Was there 10,000 most holy places? No, no, no. It's the most holy ones. And so, again, my Bible has it. I would assume yours might have it as well. A little footnote there that says that this, this could be most holy one or most holy thing. And I think that's significant because who then is the most holy? Jesus. In fact, in the Old Testament, the temple is never even anointed. There's never even a telling of another temple that's ever going to be anointed. Kings are anointed. And the king of kings was anointed. Do you remember when Jesus was anointed? At his baptism. Father speaking, Holy Spirit anoints him for his ministry. And we'll talk about this when we get there. But this was exactly at the end of 69 weeks of years that Jesus was baptized. We'll get there next week. To anoint a most holy one. And if someone was like, no, it says place, it says place, I like place. Okay, fine. Well, Jesus says that he's the true temple. He says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Why? Because everybody else was focused on a location and Jesus knew that he was coming to fulfill all of that place even as well. Jesus is the anointed one being referred to here. And that anointing took place at his baptism. All six of the things that we just walked through right here today, I think will be unpacked and even more clearly explained in the next upcoming weeks when we walk through this. Seriously, I do. I think as we look through what's going to be stated as each of these pieces is unpacked, it'll become even clearer. Oh, yeah, those things happen in the first century. Those happened when Jesus first came. But to finish the transgression, I think, means that the finalization, the, the, the culmination of all the wicked sins that the Israelites had done, they killed, their, they killed their Messiah. To put an end to sin, to seal up sin, those Jews are preserved for judgment to the end. To atone for iniquity, Jesus died to atone for the sins that you and I have committed, that we can have peace with God. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that's what he establishes in your heart the moment you're saved. You have eternal life because of his righteousness put onto you, and it's everlasting. It never fades. It never goes away. There won't be a day you need to get closer and, hey, can I get another bit of that because it wore off? No, everlasting for us. To seal, confirm both vision and profit. Fulfilled. Everything the Bible said about Jesus has happened. And to anoint a most holy one, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happened at the end of that 70 weeks. Brothers and sisters, as we think about these things, and I'm going I'm to let that be as much as we get through today, because I had thought we'd get through more, but I think it's just it's a lot to cover. I want you to be encouraged by this thought. God has a plan. If you're ever wondering when you're reading through eschatology stuff, what are some things we just take from this? Like, how can we be really helped? Guys, here's a, here's a simple conclusion we can draw from any one of these passages. God knows what he's doing. And he planned it before you and I even came about. Before we were a twinkle in our parents' eye, God had a plan. He knew what he was going to go accomplish. And not only that, but he shares that plan with us. This is a giant, big-picture, historical, redemptive plan piece. And it's why it's shared with all of us, because we all are part of redemptive history. I need to know this, just like his first audience. But our God, in love, wants for us to know. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan. 
This is especially helpful to be reminded by when you and I look around us and see the world swirling in madness and thinking, God, what, what, are, what is going on here? He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's planned this long before you and I ever came about. He's brought all these things to, to, to a culmination for his purposes. And may you and I know all the details of it? No, no, certainly not. I don't, I don't think Daniel understood all of what was coming down right here. I think he's greatly perplexed like he is with other visions. You and I can read this and go, man, I see some things. That... But our God knows what he's doing. He really is sovereign and good. He watches over the affairs of man and he works them to his ends. And we can be encouraged by that. I want to go ahead and close in prayer this morning and introduce a time of communion. I invite you all to come on forward, grab the elements, bring them back to your, your seat, and we'll partake of those things together, okay? Um, there's double stack cups, bring them back. Um, I'm going to pray to kind of open our time. You can come get them. If you're not a believer today, then this is going to be a meaningless meal to you. In fact, the Bible even says that, you, that whether you realize it or not, you're drinking judgment upon yourself if you go to take these things, because it's saying, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, when you don't. So it's like lying about something that's even that important. If you're a believer today, even if you're not a member here, please come forward, because this is for all of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we love and trust you. We want to know your word more. Father, I am so eager to understand what your word says about all of these things. I'm so eager to try to help my brothers and sisters see these things. I know that as I'm preaching through one little verse here, there are 100 questions that come to mind about a whole bunch of other verses and things, and I'm aware of a lot of that, and probably some I'm not even aware of, Lord. And so <coughs> I pray that you would help us <clears throat> be patient with one another in learning, that we'd have presuppositions challenged, we'd land on the bedrock truth that your word provides us with what we need. <clears throat> and Father, I thank you for communion. I thank you for sending Jesus <coughs> to atone for our sins. And I pray that you would help us right now to acknowledge our need for him as we partake again. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.